brings you the history of leftists of color, one swipe at a time. And this is the Left Pocket Project Podcast. On today's episode, I'm just going to be honest, it's about postpartum, it's about insurance, and it's about COVID-19. So let's get this ball rolling, and uh, you'll just have to bear with me because I'm going to be super frank this whole time. You also will hear a sound machine in the background and a baby because, oh yeah, I had one of those. So a little bit more on this in a moment. On with the show. It's late at night. It's about almost one o'clock in the morning. We just fed her, changed her, that whole thing. And she is currently in her bassinet, um, hopefully going to sleep soon. But, uh, you know, this stuff is kind of boring, especially to people who aren't parents are not super interested in babies, which I can understand because I used to kind of be one. I always said that I was more afraid of babies but loved children, which is true. I was always good with children because you can talk to them like normal human beings. Uh, but with babies, you know, it's um, it's a little bit more difficult but you, because you can talk to them, but they don't necessarily respond. But the good thing is that my daughter seems to be fairly responsive. She laughs at our jokes, which is sort of strange. Like, how do you already understand English? A little bit curious. Maybe she's just responding to the laugh itself or like the lightness of the, the way we're speaking. I'm not really sure. I'm not a child psychologist, nor do I know anything about childhood development. So if anyone knows, feel free to contribute the reason why my baby team seems to understand jokes and laugh at them. Um, but yeah, so anyway, going back a bit, uh, it's been a really wild ride, this whole pregnancy thing. I was super fatigued at the end of my pregnancy, and I ended up, um, I had to have a C-section, unfortunately. And I say unfortunately, not in judgment of people who do have C-sections, um, because, of course, I was not one to judge. I have one, after all. Um, but it was more like because I wanted to, I personally wanted to go the natural route, whatever, um, not have any, like, surgical in, interventions, if you will. Um, and you know, I, I did have a scheduled C-section that worked out great. But the fun part about this is when I saw the bill. Um, and some of you have known just from following me on Twitter or social media that I've been kind of documenting the costs for um, having a child in the U.S. just on the fly, sort of nothing official um, or like super duper detailed. But whenever I'd see an article about childbirth or cost of childbirth, um, I would try to post it on my Twitter page just because I thought, you know, it's interesting because if we're discussing the importance of things like Medicare for all or universal health care in general, um, childbirth is one of those things that like is very, very expensive in the United States and that often doesn't get discussed in as much depth. Um, although lately, thanks to a lot of black feminists and activists in general in the healthcare field, I think there is more discussion about at least black maternal health um, and the health of black children. Uh, but I certainly think that just maternity in general, the process of having a child in the U.S. Um, and the postpartum process is something that is not only incredibly expensive, but incredibly stressful because of the expense. And I say this as someone who has fairly decent um, insurance. I have student insurance because I'm finishing my PhD. And so, um, you know, I get fortunately 90% of my expenses covered if, as long as they're approved by insurance. Um, and I also don't have uh, any major co-pays 
some I have, but I don't have to pay anything upon my visit. Um, and I also have um, no deductible. So in many ways, I'm quote unquote privileged by the type of insurance plan that I have and I'm thankful for it. But at the same time, when I see the costs and the expenses that the hospital charges, it's always shocking. Um, and so this is why I said it's something that I've been documenting just out of, you know, just sheer uh, surprise at the cost of things um, and how much they've gone up over the years in particular. So again, this is my first child. Um, I had a scheduled C-section and I went in today, actually, um, today's Wednesday now, Wednesday overnight, um, March 18th. I went into my account because I got a phone call from the hospital um, about my bill. And it was actually about a very small charge from uh, January or early February for like $34 that I'd forgotten about because generally I'm very on top of paying my bills. Um, but they just called and it's kind of interesting timing considering we're in the midst of a coronavirus outbreak, which I'll talk about a little bit more uh, later because this certainly has an impact on how I'm feeling right now, um, But especially being a new mom. Uh, but yeah, so anyway, looking at the bill just out of curiosity and looking at other charges that were on um, my account, I saw the charge, the pending charge to insurance from my hospital for my C-section. And the C-section itself costs $8,045. And then looks like my, there was some other aspect of my C-section that costs $855. I believe maybe anesthesia or something. It's just listed as a hospital encounter, which is like a really weird thing to say. It almost sounds like I had some sort of tender date at the hospital, like hospital encounter. What the heck does that mean? Um, anyway, uh, so the hospital encounter was eight fifty-five. The C-section itself was eight thousand forty-five dollars, and then my stay after the C-section for recovery uh, was nine thousand five hundred and fourteen dollars, which is a lot of money um, for what was what amounted to about four days, because it was February twenty-first, twenty-second. 23rd, um, 24th and 25th, but not full days. First day was a half day basically because I was just there for surgery, um, in the afternoon and then stayed the night obviously. And then I was discharged on the morning of the 25th. Um, so anyway, there's that. Uh, and then the other fascinating thing, although frustrating and sad, uh, was that basically right after my child was born, um, I had her for about two hours in my arms during which she started to have respiratory distress, uh, which is normal for uh, babies who are born via C-section. Um, but they had to take her to the NICU. And so I was, <laughs> sorry, it's, I always get emotional when I have to talk about it. Um, she's fine now, by the way, <laughs> so it's not bad. Um, but it's very hard to talk about because that day, um, you know, I had just had a massive abdominal surgery. Um, and, uh, you know, was celebrating in my mind this idea of my child and was excited to hold her and everything. Um, and it's just sort of frustrating to think back like, oh, when I was holding her, she was having trouble breathing. Um, so they took her to the NICU that night. And I had actually, funny enough, never seen my child's face <laughs> um, for like for a day, basically, um, because when they when they delivered her via C-section, you know, I could only see kind of the back of her head because they'd taken her away to test her breathing. And then, of course, I saw the top of her head when they put her on me just to, like, kind of see, like, okay, the baby's here. She's alive. Everything's okay. Um, and then from then on, like, the nurses were checking her breathing and whatnot. Then when they took me to recovery, they put me or put her in my arms. But, you know, I just saw the top of her head because I couldn't 
move my lower half uh, because it was, you know, all deadened up for the surgery. Uh, because, yeah, they cut you in half basically when you have a C-section. Fun fact. Um, so anyway, I then, uh, you know, basically after they took her to the NICU and got her settled, I was able to see her, um, but again, only saw part of her because she had so many tubes and wires and all these things attached to her that I didn't really see her face. Um, and it was just more or less like top of her head. I was in a wheelchair when they took me down, you know, I couldn't hold her or anything because of all the wires and blah, blah, blah. Um, and so I was in the hospital recovering while my baby was in NICU also, um, recovering and receiving like intensive care, obviously, because that's what the NICU stands for, um, for people who don't know, neonatal intensive care unit. Um, so anyway, uh, after that, she was pretty, she's stable. Um, they had her on a breathing machine. They had her with a tube for feeding. They had her with all sorts of vitals, uh, running through IVs and, and all sorts of like wires and things. Um, at one point she even had to get an IV through her forehead because they couldn't find her veins because she was so little. Um, you know, she was, she was a newborn, so she was around six pounds or so. Um, so at that point, you know, several days had gone by and I was at the end of my, um, I was pretty much towards the end of, of my recovery, if you will, um, when she had basically a, a relapse um, and had major respiratory distress, um, really couldn't breathe on her own at all, again, had to have breathing machines and whatnot, um, and they had to keep her there for observation and just to make sure she was okay. And I'll never forget... Um, sorry, I'm <laughs> emotional again, um, but... I'll never forget when I went home, um, I was discharged from the hospital, you know, and I immediately went, first of all, downstairs to the NICU just to see my baby. Um, I didn't want to be anywhere else. And I remember around that time, um, my husband had said, you know, come home and eat dinner and then we can go back. And um, he had made dinner. He came to pick me up at the hospital and I couldn't eat. I couldn't stay there. You know, I wanted to go back to the hospital because I said, like, if anything happens to my daughter, I would feel incredibly guilty and like sickened by the fact that I was at home when something happened to her. Um, and I know that parents, I've, I've gotten, learned about this actually, because a lot of people reached out to me who also have had children in NICU, um, had their babies go to intensive care. And they said to me, you know, we get it. Like we've been there and we understand and we've had similar experiences and things happen that, have made us, you know, can, we can empathize and we get where you're coming from and why you're like stressed out. So while I had decided, you know, to take quote unquote maternity leave from the podcast, um, I recognized also that like this quote unquote maternity leave had turned into something else entirely that I wasn't expecting, which was basically like counting the minutes, um, in terms of when my child could get out of the NICU and be okay. First week, she had respiratory problems, and then after that, once she stabilized, um, she was having issues feeding. Uh, she wasn't eating enough, and they were bottle feeding her. I was pumping breast milk that they would feed her, and she was just kind of like only eating a little bit, um, and then sometimes would still have respiratory distress, or her like breathing would, breathing her heart rate would go down, um, and the sound of that machine alerting the nurses when that happened is still like burned in my memory. 
Um, thankfully, at the hospital that I was staying at and where my baby was, they had overnight NICU and where the parents could actually stay 24-7 should we, so, should we choose. Um, so I stayed there basically straight. Um, some nights I spent the night, and then what I would do is, um, like I would literally stay there all night on some days and then other days what I did is I had I said you know I had sort of a running joke with the amazing nurses there by the way who deserve all the credit in the world uh, but I had a running joke that I'm with my baby 23-7 and I'd say that because I would take one hour out of the day my husband would come pick me up I would go home I would take a shower and then sometimes eat something but usually I'd just get a granola bar and whatever I needed for the day and then go back to the hospital and mind you this is all still like I'm still recovering from c-section technically like I'm supposed to be at home resting and whatnot and I was like going back and forth um, to the NICU to see my child um, and staying there and trying to just be supportive because I knew that being with her would help her recovery as well um, thankfully though, because of all this going on, if there's a positive side, I don't think I really felt what some women or, you know, people who've had C-sections have felt after the fact, um, in terms of pain and gas and things like that. I think just by virtue of all the adrenaline that I was going, that was going through my body, um, about the, my child. And so, um, anyway, long story short, she was there for three weeks and I spent three weeks like this literally spending one hour at home to take a shower and then going back to the hospital. And they had a shower in the NICU for parents, but, you know, I just wanted to be at home for two seconds. Um, and then I would go back because it was just, like, nice to regroup, get everything together, put on a fresh outfit, you know, whatever, um, and regroup myself mentally and physically to go back to see her and be with her. Um and so anyway, she did finally recover, and she was discharged on this past Saturday, which is why I had initially planned on doing an episode over the weekend, but things got a little sidetracked because I finally had my child at home with me. I was super excited. It was a learning curve, certainly, because I had to get used to all sorts of things about her personality now that she was at home and her needs and things like that. Um, but in general, I was, I've just been super busy and trying to manage. But on top of that, as anyone knows at this point, unless they've been living under a rock or like part of Big Brother Germany, which I saw today, was not aware of this virus. Um, but there has been coronavirus. Uh, there's been a coronavirus outbreak, they say pandemic, um, around the world. And it's spread from uh, more than just a few countries. It's going it's worldwide now, obviously. Um, and one of the scariest things about this is that there's still not enough information about the virus, um, in my opinion, uh, for us to feel confident about what is happening. I think also just because some governments, including our own, have been less than transparent um, about numbers, don't necessarily have adequate testing or facilities to help those who are sick. Um, people are still expecting uh, their employees to go to work, my husband being one of them. Um, thankfully, he's on vacation right now on vacation days, which, again, we should have a separate discussion about because there, we don't have any paternal or family leave really in the United States that's adequate um, and paid, uh, and we should. Um, but then on top of that, you know, I think that seeing this at through the eyes of a new parent puts me in a particularly interesting spot because I'm recognizing all the areas where parents are disregarded and their the rights of parents and their children are disregarded in the name of capitalism, basically. Um, and so that's where, like, 
this discussion actually does relate to some of the themes that we talk about in on left POC quite often, because I think not only being a new parent, but that compounded with the impact of this virus and that it's having already on the population in the United States and in many other countries is making me recognize very clearly that not only are most of the services were provided um, by both the public and private sector, um, they're not necessarily the cost that we're given, right? Like they're not worth what their their estimated cost is um, or what they charge us. So things like gas, electric, um, flights, whatever, that have all of a sudden become much cheaper or free or like, oh, you don't have to pay that right now. We understand if you need a break, et cetera. It's interesting to me that right now under the the impact of the virus, we're seeing all of these services that were previously at a premium um, considered in some cases luxuries or, um, you know, we're, we're, we have to charge for that and take away money from you as a citizen to pay for this, all of a sudden are being negotiated. And so it's fascinating even to see, especially um, people on the right expressing frustration in some cases um, and wanting to at least, uh, you know, give a little bit of breathing room to American citizens who are dealing with this crisis in, you know, and I think in many ways a crisis of this magnitude for the first time in many of our lives. Um, it also made me reflect on the fact that, you know, in so many other countries, they've had epidemics, they've had natural disasters, they've had many other things that have happened that I think pale in comparison, or like that, that make what's happening to us in the U.S. often pale in comparison. Um, and I think that they have adjusted in many cases to these sorts of crises in a way that something like coronavirus is just like, oh, that's one more thing um, on top of many other things that we are struggling with and worrying about. We being, you know, if I'm speaking for someone in one in one such country who's dealing with severe um, economic, political, or ecological disasters. Um, the other thing I think that it makes us really recognize, or at least me personally recognize, is the fact that there are so many aspects of my life that's that I thought I had control over and that I thought the government even or certain, you know, private entities had control over. And when you see something like this happen, you recognize how quickly that that control is very fleeting um, and temporary. And I think getting an email a second basically from any app or the company that I have an app through or that I've subscribed to an email list for or that I've ever bought something from. I mean, it's amazing because they've all been sending emails pretty much with multiple updates a day talking about how they're responding to the virus and how they're responding with regard to their employees and whether or not they're going to stay open, if they're still going to be operational, et cetera. Um, so throughout the day, I've been getting updates from like Starbucks and Chipotle about what they're doing because they too are trying to stay on top of what the local governments are doing and the federal government in terms of like access to, to restaurants and food services and things like that. Um, so it's been interesting to kind of see how, what the, like to see how, the companies and entities and people and government officials and whatnot that we normally look to as um, as a sort of face for control, for order, for stability have sometimes, um, you know, have, have given off the air that they have everything under control. But when you have something like this happen, you recognize how how little they do actually control and how we as citizens um, 
have the capacity, I think, uh, and not just as citizens, but I don't mean citizens as of the United States, but I mean just like global citizens, people, period, um, how much we have within our reach to push back on this uh, facade of control and to push back on what we could see as, you know, what I, as I mentioned earlier, sort of economic stranglehold on certain aspects of our lives and really say, wait a second, we have the right to ask for more from you. We have the right to negotiate prices down. We have the right to free services or services that are paid through our tax dollars that should come back to us. Um, and I think that it's really emphasized the need for us to continually organize and also very clearly the need to have flexible and innovative organizational tactics. Because right now, in particular, one of the things that I'm concerned about, um, and I'll get into concerns, other concerns a little bit later too, but just from the state aspect, I'm concerned about state overreach. And I think that, you know, we saw this quite clearly after 9-11, for those of you who were alive when that happened, or at least, you know, old enough to be sort of cognizant of what was going on, shortly after 9-11, they passed the Patriot Act, which, you know, very much clamped down on our um, civil liberties and many of our personal rights in this country. Um, and you saw what very quickly went from a supposed united front against terrorism, whatever, uh, to antagonizing Muslim Americans, Arab Americans, um, people who are South Asian or South, of South Asian descent, um, and to an increased surveillance state, an increasingly violent military, things like that. So I think that there are certain degrees where we have to say, are we going a tick too far? And what seems like it is meant to help us to stabilize this order, um, to, to sort of put back the normal patterns of life that we once had, um, that those measures aren't always for our benefit. And they often, unfortunately, end up benefiting um, a ruling class that is taking advantage of us for every dime that we make and can, can try to save, you know. Um, I think that we have to be careful in moments like this to not sign away our rights um, and to give up all of our powers. Now, just to be clear, that is not saying you disobey government orders right now to stay inside or if you have a state that's on lockdown to not travel beyond it, etc. Like these are things that are being done for our health safety, first and foremost. Um, and I recognize the necessity based on looking at what's happened in other countries because we're kind of like in the past to their future, if you will. If you look at Italy or China, Iran even, you're, we're looking into the future and seeing what could be coming our way and learning from the good and bad of those processes that the governments in those countries have implemented. And I think that, um, you know, we have, we have that advantage and that then sort of reemphasizes, reiterates, um, and strengthens the need for us to really be following the protocols, at least from healthcare professionals, the CDC and whatnot, um, because they're really the ones who understand what's going on in, in a much better way than government officials in other areas, um, including police, army, et cetera, uh, financial sector even. I think we have to be, though, vigilant, despite our inability necessarily to organize in person, to go out in public and march and things like that, which, again, reminds me of, like, why we have to get more creative, um, because it really, it's important for us in this time to be vocal about the need to protect ourselves from the virus and the spread of the virus, but at the same time to remember that 
if and when this virus ever goes away or dissipates or is brought under control, that people still have to have their rights and people still have to have some semblance of personal autonomy amid crises and beyond them, of course. So I think that, um, you know, one of the things that I've, I've been concerned by is the intervention by the military in this process. I recognize that the military, in particular the Army, um, has been trained to deal with certain disasters of this sort. Um, but at the same time, we've seen multiple forms of military uh, take these sorts of moments and go overboard and do things that are harmful. We've seen it with um, responses to natural disasters from the UN, for example, where we had rampant cases of um, rape and in particular child molestation and child rape um, in places like Haiti, Congo. Um, and so we have to be mindful of the ways that those who are presented to us as our saviors, if you will, in these moments of crises can also commit harm. And we have to make sure that we're holding them accountable and preventing, indeed, um, you know, something like this from happening in the first place um, by having sorts of, you know, measures and control and demanding that we have measures of control over these sorts of military bodies. Um, I think also one of the things that I was always concerned about before things kind of blew up, like, I don't know if I'm the only one, but it feels like things got really crazy really fast. So, like... I remember being in the NICU um, with my daughter and my husband could come and visit and, you know, would sometimes spend the night, would spend the day with her, et cetera. And then it got to the point towards the end, the last two or three days of the baby being in the NICU, my husband was not allowed to visit. Only one person was allowed to visit at a time. And I, being her mother, was the only person allowed to see her. Um, I got to the point where I was even afraid that they wouldn't let me up. And so just in order to control spread of the virus and to limit access to the children of people who could be in infected because um, they obviously are dealing with babies who have compromised immune systems um, who are very, very, in some cases, preterm, very young, um, and cannot be exposed to something like this because it would kill them pretty much instantly. Um, so anyway, long story short, on this case, I think that those seeing those things kind of unfold with time made me, or in, quick, in a very quick, rapid speed, actually, um, made me recognize that Something needed to be done on my end, like I need to go to the grocery store, I need to get stuff, I need to prepare. But I also was afraid of what other people would do. I am American from the United States. I know my people <laughs> and I know that we can be very extreme and violent, um, quick to action, but in a way that's very negative sometimes. Often um, we have seen instances of or incidents of racism towards people of Asian American, East Asian descent or Asian American descent. Um, and we've seen people responding pretty like in, in very absurd fashions to hoarding already. Uh, so, you know, we've seen some people who've been hoarding toilet paper and literally physically fighting over toilet paper. We've seen people hoarding um, hand sanitizer, gloves, um, face masks, many of these things that are like emergent, necessary for emergency, emergency personnel and first responders, um, and thus like depriving people who actually need these items from access to them. Um, amid the crisis and in that early stage in particular where we couldn't necessarily ship things from China where they were manufactured. Um, so, you know, I think that there, there was that aspect. I was afraid of other Americans, right? I was afraid of what people would do and how they would respond because a crisis in 
I don't know, one country is going to be very different than a crisis in another country just based on the social fabric of that country. I also, while in the NICU, was afraid of violence um, act, you know, being active, enacted. So I was concerned about, you know, someone coming and shooting up a hospital to take gloves or to take masks or to get sanitizer I mean, whatever. Like, I just didn't know. Or just out of sheer anxiety over what was happening because we've definitely seen moments where people have gone to extremes and committed acts of violence um, seemingly senselessly, you know, um, and... I was concerned about that, to be honest, being in the hospital um, while this has been happening. I also, though, um, you know, thinking back on it today, I feel like I'm in a movie or something. It very much feels surreal. And then when I sit and kind of think about things and really get in my head about it, I get emotional, not only because of the many hormones flowing through my body as a new mom, but also just over the simple fact that, like, I, too, am vulnerable. So when we talk about vulnerable people amid this crisis, most of the time we think about the elderly who, unfortunately, have been hit very hard by the coronavirus. Um, and it's very sad to see the ways that some countries have had to respond, um, you know, literally leaving the elderly behind, more or less, in terms of treatment because they're not considered a priority just in these, like, very dire circumstances um, and emergencies. I think, though, that... In recognizing that, I had to also come to terms with the fact that I, too, am vulnerable. I'm considered part of the vulnerable population in the sense that I'm an asthmatic, and coronavirus obviously is a virus that directly impacts the lungs and your breathing capacity. Um, I also have MS, which is an autoimmune disease, multiple sclerosis. sclerosis excuse me. Um, so that also just means that my immune system could be potentially compromised if impacted by a virus quite as strong as the coronavirus. Um, even though I'm a generally healthy person, that's something that I've definitely been afraid about. The other thing is just the simple fact that I just had a baby. And people who just had children know that <laughs> their babies don't get all their shots right away. Their babies are still developing their immune systems. And while many have said that babies and younger children are can be carriers but do not normally have to deal with symptoms from the, the virus, I'm still concerned. And, you know, she's a newborn. My baby's a newborn, only a few weeks old. And so my concerns are based on what I know of her condition. And also the simple fact that she was born with respiratory problems. So this is something that when coming to terms with was pretty frightening because I think before that, because things had happened so fast, it didn't seem real to me. I knew it was real. I wasn't going to go out in the streets and act a fool. You know, like I wasn't trying to do anything rash. Um, in the process. But at the same time, I think part of me wanted to believe that, okay, we're going to get it under control, or there's going to be a way around this. Eventually, things are going to be okay. Things will get better. Like, we're as long as people are just vigilant about washing their hands and taking good care of themselves, it'll be okay. And, you know, just seeing the stats and uh, the way things are happening in other countries and recognizing that as the potential future for us, it has left me feeling incredibly anxious. Um, and it's something that I'm trying to deal with as someone who doesn't have anxiety. Like I don't, I'm not a diagnosed per anxious person, you know, like I'm not taking any meds, none of that, like other than my vitamins. Um, I don't take any like drugs to deal with depression or anxiety or any of these things. And I think that this process has made me go through all of those emotions as if 
I were a person who had those issues or were dealing with those issues because it's been so intense and it's hit us, many of us all at once. Um, so that's something that I've been grappling with. And, and this is why I was saying earlier, you know, like I'm on my head about my husband not having to go to work. He has a job where he could potentially work from home and is still unfortunately being forced to go to work, which then leads me to another issue that I had sort of hinted at earlier, but just the ways that these moments can be used to further abuse on people who are um, lower income, who have hourly wage work, um, who work in the service sector. It just goes to show like how much our country and the world as a whole, but especially our country, really needs to prioritize the needs of these people. They are on the front lines when it comes to moments like this. I mean, pe- restaurant workers, emergency care personnel, nurses, doctors, firefighters, you know, first responders, etc. People who have these kinds of jobs don't get a break. And in a more fair society, we would say, look, you know, we have all these groceries. We need to ration them out. No one go to a restaurant. People who work in restaurants should be allowed to go home and be with their families and quarantine and be safe from the virus. And instead, they're being forced to work in close quarters to meet the demands of a a class of people of which I am included, right, who have the disposable income to eat out or to go to a restaurant every now and then to enjoy themselves, but who right now are, you know, resorting to delivery services on a regular basis, which, as I said, again, you know, we in many ways have done this because we recognize that being in these spaces is not safe. And in some states like my own, Maryland, but also New York, California, Washington, have limited all access to public facilities and places like restaurants where gatherings are generally more than five people. Um, So in that, in recognizing that, you know, I just, I don't think it's fair or just that people who work in these industries are forced to go to work to meet the demands and needs of, not even needs, but I think I would say luxury requirements, Uh, the wants, right, of people who in some cases, though not all, uh, but in many cases could do things on their own had they prepared, had they had time to prepare, and or, as I mentioned already, had the government done more to make sure that everyone got what they needed. You know, if we're looking at socialist societies, societies that are trying at least to operate under a socialist framework, um, we see these kinds of moments become, um, you know, really just like another time for people to buckle down and make sure that they're sharing and communicating and operating in a way that takes more account for the greater good. And I think being in the United States, which is such an individualistic society, what I see more and more is this idea of every man out for himself, dog eat dog, you know, survival of the fittest. Um, we see more of that than I think the communities that should be coming together actually coming together. But again, through alternative means, because you can't literally come together, right? Not right now. Um, but I think that there's a there's a real need for us to reassess our priorities and think, okay, what do I actually need? What must I have? People who have disabilities of any, of any sort, particularly physical disabilities, um, people who have small children, of which I am, you know, I am one. I think sometimes our needs are different slightly than the average person, just because of, um, you know, having certain demands, um, either physical or otherwise, that we have to meet. But many of them physical. Um, so obviously, if you have a baby, you have to do certain things that someone who doesn't have a baby wouldn't have to do. Or someone, if you have a disability, a physical disability in particular, you may not be able to cook on your own or you may not be able to go 
to the grocery store, etc. So you rely on these delivery services. And so just to make it clear, I'm not placing blame on anyone who is choosing to get food delivered. Um, that's not what I'm doing. I'm not judging you. But what I am saying is that our government should have preempted this situation and, um, you know, acted accordingly and made sure that everyone got what they needed, you know, just like socialize all grocery stores at this point, right? Like socialize all food service, uh, make it so that people can have access to these goods without having to fight amongst one another like we are living in some sort of place where there's not infinite amounts of toilet paper and hand sanitizer um, under a normal circumstance. I think also that we have to make sure that um, we are not underestimating what this could mean, right? And I think we saw the Democratic Party, for example, severely underestimate the reach, the spread, the intensity of this virus um, by continuing the election. And I want to make something else clear. You know, I posted something on Facebook the other day, just sort of in jest, but only half so, about Donald Trump suspending the general elections and how scary that would be um, because of the coronavirus, or at least that's the excuse that he would give. And I think that that still stands for me. That is a concerning thought. But what's also concerning is the simple fact that Again, we don't have the backup plan in our electoral system so that people who cannot get to the polls or people who are limited in some way in mobility, limited in some way in time, etc., can't just like mail in a ballot. We don't have anything in the system that's a fail-safe when it comes to moments like these or moments of voter disenfranchisement, voter suppression, etc. If we had a sort of backdoor entryway to get into the voting system, and get it up and moving and up and running and keep it that way, even amid crises, that would be amazing. But we don't have that right now. And so I think this is a very clear area to see it insofar as, you know, um, people being stuck with, like, certain needs not being met, um, but then having to fight over them and things like that in ways that are not necessary and that could be, um, could have been resolved earlier on when we saw what was happening elsewhere. Um and I think that, you know, we have the opportunity now to react and respond in a way that's responsible, that is collectively um, minded, uh, that makes sure that our neighbors are okay, our friends are okay, people we don't know are okay, reaching out and, and sharing, and sorry, that's my baby, sharing in these moments instead of fighting one another. Um, and instead, what we're seeing is is an intense response in many cases through through greed um, and, and individualism. And it's something that I really wish we would learn not to do in moments like this. Um, another thing that comes up, of course, is with the DNC, as I mentioned earlier, by continuing this race, which is the topic I was talking about and kind of got distracted from. Um, but in continuing the Democratic primary without the safety net of like a mail-in ballot or something so that people won't have to go to the polls and literally risk their lives in order to vote between Biden and Sanders. Um, it would be nice if they had considered these things as, as fail-safes for the voting system, but also if, if more people had considered the fact that like this is almost, this is, this is voting under a state of exception. Um, and in normal circumstances, this happened in another city, or I'm sorry, another country, we would call it a coup. We would say, no, this is an appropriate behavior. Unless, of course, we were doing it ourselves, in which case we were just, you know, giving people their freedom and whatnot, whatever you want to call it these days. Um, but in this instance, you know, what we're witnessing is a, a vote that's taking place under a state of exception. 
and in some cases, you know, literal uh, curfews and literal, um, you know, policed and heavily armed, militarized control. Uh, in some cases, there are things like, like I said, um, you know, curfews and whatnot. So those those sorts of measures make it difficult to vote, not only in terms of your peace of mind and saying this is the person whose policies I agree with most and whom I think could get us through, who I think could get us could get us through a moment like this. Um, instead of voting that way, you're voting under duress. And I think that a situation like this should be reevaluated. Um, and people should say, look, we should vote through a different means, a set of means, or we should wait for things to subside in terms of this, that, and the third, and have a backup measure to basically have like a, I don't know, some sort of manager to take over the position of president in between the presidency itself and the election. I mean, I don't know what, what would be the alternative here other than just having Trump continue to be president for as long as necessary, which is a really scary thought. Um, but we'd have to have some sort of measure, um, backup measure, so that we have a fair arbiter in a situation like this where the president or whoever is functioning is really just a manager of crisis and not necessarily a partisan um, of any sort. All that said, though, I think that there are a lot of things that have been neglected by the party, by the candidates, um, by Americans in general. I think people take for granted their health. I think people take for granted this sense of temporary political stability amid crisis because what we've seen unfold in other places is um, the intensification of the virus and not it's necessarily slowing down. Um, so we just... Again, we need to be vigilant. We need to be, or excuse me, we need to be vigilant. Um, we need to have a sense of our needs and ways that we can help others with their needs. And we need to make sure that I think first and foremost we're listening to one another. We're responding to each other's concerns. Um, we're not dismissing the seriousness of this disease, and we're not dismissing the way people are feeling through it. I mean, I know just speaking for myself, I've gone through a complete and utter emotional roller coaster over the past few days worrying about what's happening. Um, and I know that there are people out there who are in much worse shape than I am in terms of their financial stability or, you know, like insurance or um, food security, all those things. Like there are many, many, many millions of people in this country who cannot claim the basic few hundred dollars for a personal emergency and I know many of you have heard this stat before but it's true like how do we expect people who get seven dollars as minimum wage an hour how do we expect them to survive in a moment like this without additional assistance from the government why do we not have like what Tulsi Gabbard and um, uh, Ilhan Omar among others proposed to have a UBI that goes into place in moments of emergency like this you know Again, this is an example of one of those things where like, hey guys, why didn't you think of this before? Why are we just now getting to this? Um, so as my baby kind of is waking up, it's now 1.31, I'm going to bring this to a close to attend to her. Um, but I just wanted to check in with everyone and let you guys know I am here. I am seeing what's going on. I'm trying to keep my head up um, and stay positive, even though I'm very stressed out and concerned about it. Um, and... I also wanted to say that we're going to have some newer, newer episodes. There's one that I said that I, like I said, was going to 
put out this weekend and things got a little busy because my baby came home. Um, but I will be putting out, I hope, if time allows, uh, in between feedings and all of that um, for the baby. I, I will put out uh, an episode with regard to Marily Franco because her the anniversary of her death was on the 14th of March. Um, and I definitely want to put out something commemorating her life um, and the work that she did. I also want to put out an episode on politics and the coronavirus, past and present. Um, past and present pro politics, of course, not past and present coronavirus, because we know it hasn't had that active of a past. <laughs> um, and I, I think also just, you know, to have some check-ins here and there with regard to the election, um, because things are getting really weird right now. Um, and I think it's important for us to at least vent and discuss with other thinkers, people who are who are contemplating these ideas, what are the alternatives and what are the ways that we can still keep up a, a sense of politics that are communal, that are supportive, and that are based in left principles that meet everyone's needs and that doesn't that don't leave people behind because they don't have the funds or they don't have the, the clout or the power or whatever in a society. Um, we need a far more equal society. And I think that moments like this are a really good reminder of it and a very clear example of the things that are possible but that we have not pursued or that our government has deprived us deprived us of solely because of you know the prospect of making more money and staying in more control um, and we have to be really on top of this uh, so in that sense I'm asking you to see this moment as an opportunity instead of um, just the harrowing levels of crisis because I think the panic while I def I definitely feel it myself all the time all day long I also am trying to keep some levity to remind myself that people have been through worse in our history we're not the only ones to face an epidemic um, and we're not the only ones to be dealing with this through any means necessary even if they feel a little weak um, we are the people who I think show some promise in terms of what, um, you know, people can do to help one another. So anyway, those are my thoughts. Sorry if some of them were scattered. Uh, as I said, it's been a rough past few weeks. Um, and just mentally I'm exhausted, physically I'm exhausted, emotionally I'm exhausted, and I'm trying to hang in there, um, to, to put out some more content, but also of course my child right now and my own health and well-being have to come first. But on that note, I just want to check in, as I said, I hope that everyone's doing okay. Please take care of yourselves. Please follow instructions from the CDC. Be careful, be vigilant, um, be understanding of people's needs, including the need to, to be alone and to not talk about these sorts of things sometimes and to do something that's lighter, to watch a comedy show or a funny movie or, you know, try to do something at home that you like because many of us are going to get cabin fever very soon. So I think that we all just have to be mindful of each other and each other's needs, careful about the, our fellow man or woman or, you know, whomever, uh, and really understand that this is going to be a tough time, but we're going to get through it. And there's no need to act in ways that are neglectful of the most vulnerable populations who are here in this country. So thank you all again. Thank you for listening. Um, I'll have out new episodes that are far more political very soon. And, uh, yeah, everyone have a good one. Stay safe. Stay off the street. Get out of the Starbucks. Make your coffee at home like we used to do. Uh, because I think we're going to be a lot safer that way. Anyway, thanks, everyone. Have a good one. Bye.